0: Welcome to another episode of EdTech Cafe, a podcast series about the intersection of art, science, and education by the Educational Technology Team at Stanford Medicine. We sit down with some media and production-savvy professionals to discuss how they use their talents to support science and improve educational outcomes across the globe. I'm Jessica Whittemore, and I'm joined by my funny co-hosts, William Ventini and Andrew Beck. On today's episode, we're joined by John Jameson from the Graduate School of Business at Stanford. And it's a really fun interview. What do we have to look forward to?
1: Like you said uh, earlier, Jessica, it's our first guest that I think all three of us don't know personally or have worked with um, in a professional setting um, or anything like that. But I mean, the man had a, he comes from a very, very cool background, also just a very unique, interesting journey to educational um, media and probably one of the better interviews we've had. Uh I mean, we just kept talking and talking to the point where we're, we're we now feel pressure to get through this intro. <laughs>
0: The us part will be very short today because our interview was so rich and full. He was a communications major. Mm. Hmm? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, just skip to the interview. <laughs> <laughs> no, we need a little no, treat. That was really good.
0: We got to <laughs> have our treat, William, because we call it the treat of the day. A treat of the treat day. Treat of the day. Treat of the day. Uh, but honestly, was, it's the treat of the week for me. <laughs> <laughs> what oh, kind of talking
2: what, to John Jameson? No, or was your week about? Your,
0: no, your treat of the day is often my treat of oh. the week for me. Oh, yeah. So yay. what do <laughs> what do we have today? <laughs> What's our flavor this week? Wow.
2: Okay. I mean, you know what? Is I, it as I, I treacly
0: act- sweet as that thing I just said?
2: <laughs> you know what? I I I didn't here I I was gonna say I didn't have a flavor, but uh, suddenly it came to me. <laughs> uh, th- this is the flavor: ham, cheese, ham, cracker, cheese, cracker ham and cheese cracker ham and cheese
0: <laughs> so so savory it's a very specific today You're lunchable flavored today in your treat
2: uh, ding 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 <laughs> exactly right <laughs> that oh, is precisely <laughs> what i was thinking about it, 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 i am i'm kind of shocked and really happy that that you said lunchable <laughs> You know, my treat of the day um, is really just something I wanted to share. Um, a short, I guess you would call it a short story that I read, which I felt was a treat and that I feel like everyone should read. Um, have either of you heard of 17776? <laughs> <laughs> the, the year?
0: The The year slash the revolution slash the book.
2: A.K.A. what football will look like in the future. What? That, that's the alternate title. Remember earlier in the week I told you that, that uh, the subject was football? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, okay, so there's this... Uh, <laughs> I'm so well. Okay, your your reaction says to me that you have not. Uh, you have no idea what I'm talking about.
0: <laughs> that would be correct.
2: <laughs> well, uh, okay. Um, I, but I uh, can't of you, wait to know. <laughs> you will be well. My hope for you is that you will check out what I'm going to share and my hope is that you will be moved in in way in many ways because uh, i read this short story hosted on spnation.com which is a sports website by john boys another john this is the john john episode and um 17776 um, I'll try to define it for you a little bit, but not too much. Um, Wikipedia calls it a serialized speculative fiction multimedia narrative. So it's a web it's a web based short story. It unfolds as a transcription of color coded dialogue, images, gifs, videos, um, some original music, but. It, what it is, is three sentient satellites passing time, watching America's now immortal population pass their time playing football 15,000 years in the future. It's, it's hilarious. It's heartbreaking. It thinks a little bit about what it means to be human. And I don't know. There's not much more to say except for to, I, w- I. want you to experience it for yourself. Um, the three char- the three main characters are Pi- the Pioneer Nine space probe, the Pioneer Ten space probe, and the Jupiter icy moons explorer, AKA Juice. And they just watch, watch uh, Americans playing football. 15,000 years in the future where essentially for some unknown reason in the year 2026 uh, everyone stops dying aging and being born and so they basically solve a lot of their problems and have to figure out how to pass time and I it's just this thoughtful kind of snapshots into what it what it means to be human and and what it means to be a person because we get to read about these uh satellites and i don't know i i i don't have that much to say about it because i want you to just take some time and and read through it and watch it i thought it was so beautiful i mean one thing that made me think about and i think you know, with 20, the year being what it is, twenty twenty, um, it reminded me of um, being in college. My senior project in college was a survey of science fiction in like in and uh, in and around the nineteen seventies, and so I watched literally every science fiction movie that came out in the nineteen seventies. Um, How that many was were there? About um probably i probably watched like 68 that that was the number cuz i added a couple from before <laughs> and after that decade um and the the specific like topic was visions of the future uh, so star wars is out but star trek is in it's what's the world going to look like in the future i feel like this is such an interesting topic to me personally that like i don't know there's this website called paleo future that's about this specific topic it's like looking at drawings comics writing about you know what is the future going to be like and um you know recently i've started experiencing eco anxiety just anxiety about the climate and you know with the fires and in, in in the bay and all of this um so it's been on my mind um one interesting fact of uh, about the survey is that every single one of the movies you would classify as a dystopia, except for one, which was Star Trek. And that one Star Trek movie, uh, was Star Trek The Motion Picture, uh, the premise of it is that um, the Enterprise... And the crew have to go and investigate this mysterious, sentient galactic cloud that's flying toward Earth. They don't know if it's a threat or or something else. Their point of view is always to go and learn and explore. And what they find out, which is the twist in the end of the movie, sorry, um, <laughs> is that at the center of the galactic cloud is... Voyager 1, a space probe that we launched in 1977. Oh, yeah. And over the 400 years since that had launched, because Star Trek takes place in the 23rd century, the Voyager probe grows sentient and becomes self-aware and builds this massive technological shell around itself, which is what that galactic cloud is. And what it's doing is it's returning to Earth to fulfill its mission, which is to report back to its creator. Um, and in a way, the spacecraft interprets its own programming as a sort of spiritual quest to seek its creator, which is, you know, uh, I think something that a lot of people have uh, do and, and which is something that is a very human quest. And so uh, I was surprised to see that same plot idea recycled in 1776 of these space probes becoming sentient becoming human in, in their own way. And um, it got me thinking, well, is the short story that I'm reading, is it a dystopia or a utopia? And what is, what is a utopian vision of the future mean to us especially now so i wanted to ask you both i mean what is what does utopia mean for you or what is a quality of the future that is positive that um is important to you
0: first i have to move past my embarrassment of mishearing you <laughs> at the beginning thinking you just said 1776
2: oh yeah no. me too <laughs> yeah. that's not
0: the number you said but I think that that point about science fiction and the breakdown between dystopia and utopia is fascinating, and yeah. I feel like I want more of the world and more of our art to be to be Star Trek. <laughs> um, because, I mean, if you're always looking, just like visualization, visualizing what you want the world to be like is not only just as powerful an exercise as avoiding pitfalls, but can be even more powerful. Like we should be focusing on what we like. My hope for the future is that uh, if humans don't deal with climate change and get their shit together, that like the planet will go on. Mm. Even if humans wipe themselves out and unfortunately lead to the largest mass extinction, in all of Earth's history, um, at least some things will survive, and they will take the planet back over, and like life will live on. That's my hope, which is also bleak. But
2: oh, that's that's nice. Um, what about you, Andrew? I am going to get a little bit
1: more pessimistic. I know we're supposed to talk about utopia but um, kind of in tandem with climate change and humans getting their shit together, um, I think there's something to be said about population control as well. Um, and I'm not talking about... I, I don't mean that in terms of, like, eugenics or, like, you know, or any kind of, like, totalitarian, like, enforcement of this, but either it, it comes through space colonization or as much as I am a, like. I, I don't like the idea of colonizing and having to, like, re- revert back to, like, imperial ways, um, in a sense. But if we don't... Revert
0: back as if we ever left.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's true. Um, But, I mean, I feel like there is a capacity to um, human presence on this planet and... Like, if we don't figure that out, because we're just growing mm. so, there are just so many more people in the world today, then we're just going to consume all the natural resources. We're going to consume, um, I mean, who knows? Like, even if we, like, colonize Mars or something we'll and, and start to, like, build a foundation there, I feel like we'll also reach a tipping point in terms of consumption, Um so my my vision of a utopia would be something where there is a little bit more har- harmony not just in in terms of how we affect the planet directly but in terms of just how we are present and we exist in the world which is yeah just some kind of uh just some kind of equilibrium uh yeah that I want to push back a little and say that it's not
0: like the number of human bodies that is a problem. It's the distribution of resources and bodies and the like disproportionate hoarding of certain resources um, in certain areas. And that we have enough food and clean water on the planet to give like it's about taking what you need and not more than that, right?
1: I wouldn't say it's one or the other. I think it's it's this nexus of problems, but I if you if you just recently I learned that there are now what like over 7 billion, 8 billion, close to 8 billion people on this planet. I mean, it was only like 5 years ago that I 10 years ago that I thought it was still around 6 billion. If you just leave leave that unchecked, then we're going to get to a point where there is literally no more land to cover. And
0: Um, I guess I
1: think that's a problem. And if i
0: sorry, I should have kept going because it's though I wanted to make that point. I agree fully with your desire for us to just be more present and more responsible about where we are in the planet and in the world. And that like doing that will take care of a lot of um the other issues
2: so I I wanted to bring this up because um I mean it's really fascinating it like just I mean already in just like a minute of talking we're starting to tease out like issues and and, and hopes and dreams and I I've one thing that like I I mean one one reason why I was thinking about this was, was you know it is so, It seems so much easier to think about dystopia and to imagine that and all of the ways in which things can go wrong and which things are going wrong, you know? Yeah. You Um, just
0: look at whatever piece of technology has made you mad most recently and you extrapolate on that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. That's the black mirror thing. Yeah. (laughs) But I think it's so hard. It's much harder seemingly to imagine the ways in which things can go right um or or not even go right but that that there can be some some goodness in the future and so you know when i was reading 1776 i was thinking about this be, because you know it 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 takes some ideas from one of the very very few utopian visions of the future which is star trek and uses it to look not out into outer space but to look directly back at us um and you know the story and the the satellites are sort of like this greek chorus looking looking back at the events of earth and and thinking about them and trying to understand them and um you see a lot of things i mean in, in a way you could read the story as a horror story of the, the agony and boredom of living forever where your only respite is inventing new, more insane ways to play football. It's really funny, by the way. Like I am, <laughs> strongly encourage you to read I this. I gotta say,
0: now that like, you put it that way.
2: <laughs> like there is this horror. Go ahead. <laughs> no. There's horror on the on the periphery of this story, right? Of like imagining 15,000 years into the future and everybody who's alive right now is alive in the future and they've been going on trying to pass their time playing football (laughs) and uh there's something scary about that and then when you when you read this there's also all of these images of google maps which incorporate the predicted change in in the climate and, um, and the sea level. So for instance, New York city is completely under underwater, um, which is something that they only get to near the end of the story. Um, so there are these like dystopian elements to it, like the destruction of this entire city where I'm living right now, but there's also like this utopia, which is thinking about, um, you know, Think, thinking about why do we go on and what 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 qualities of of people will remain in in the future, and um, one of the central ones to the story is the idea of play and the idea of loving each other, um, and so for me one one aspect of utopia that I I take from the story that I read uh, is is the importance of of play in the future. So. Whatever whatever that utopia looks like, the ability to play and to play lovingly with other people is something that that I think we take for granted right now, but uh, which is um, a kind of a triumph of our own existence right now. Um, and yeah, that's just something that I think you know uh, was my treat of the week. for for myself was thinking about the ways in which the future can have love in it and play and humor amongst whatever other global catastrophes might happen those things will still be there too you know there's a um there's a buddhist
1: proverb that i'm not going to recite because i don't remember the exact wording and I don't want to risk sounding like an idiot any more than I already do, um, but it basically is, it, it it ties it ties our existential crisis um, in terms of you know especially when we're faced with um, pessimism and dystopian outlooks. Um, like if you look at um, a, a living being without consciousness, at least consciousness in the same way that we humans have it. Um, they kind of move forward in life because that's just built into their nature or into existence. It's kind of like we live because we exist, kind of an uh, kind of an idea, and we you know we push forward because we're alive, and we have this kind of self survival instinct in us um, to just keep going and push forward, and. As bleak as times can get, um, as tough as times can be, sometimes I think there is this. To me, what I believe is that there is this innate, built-in tendency for us to just keep pushing forward um, and to look out for our own survival. Um, and usually, that would lead us towards more utopian outcomes. I think um, because you know, you just if you just keep dwelling on pessimism and you know negative outcomes and things like that you either become apathetic or you become self-destructive right and I, i i to me that would be a symptom of something gone terribly wrong um either as a society or within one individual um so i think i think we'll you know naturally keep looking for solutions keep developing solutions and hopefully, we'll
2: just constantly, I guess, make the world a better place. Um, kind of yes. Thing. And my my invitation, my invitation to uh, anybody listening and to you two, is to just think about um, what it means to be going toward a good future, and to keep that in mind. Because for me, I've I personally found it really helpful to um, be thinking about a good future and to be watching star trek right now <laughs> is <laughs> has been really helpful i've been wondering why i've been so uh, drawn to star trek lately out of any time in my life and i i think it's you know it's that positive vision that that we all need to have to drive forward and um, on a final note about 17776 um related to EdTech for once Um, would be that like uh, the design of the story itself is incredible because, um, as I mentioned, it's a multimedia piece using images and video and music and archival documents as well as writing. And um, for me personally, as somebody who makes content and educational content online, uh, I found it really inspiring to just think about all of the things you can do when you open your mind to like what what can a story be it doesn't need to be just words or images it can be both and many other things too so for me like you know that is so that is super inspiring too just on a kind of a, a day-to-day creating things level beautiful
0: it sounds like an experience
2: yes uh I invite you to go on that experience.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, that makes me think of like you can sit and look at the world around you and see things that are wrong and use that to identify problems and come up with solutions for them. But sometimes sitting where you are and looking at everything that's wrong just gets you stuck and it's really important to shake it up and find the ability to just like forget that, forget that presence and imagine a better future. And, you know, I've never really watched Star Trek, not never really, I've never watched Star Trek. Um, And I'm going to, because I like that. Um, I've found visualizing a better future for myself, to be very empowering lately, mm. and I'm gonna run with that, William. Thank you.
2: I I recommend you start with Deep Space Nine. I think you'll be blown away by the first episode. I was shocked in tears about how good it was.
0: Whoa! What a recommendation. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we should have a Star Trek episode of this.
0: Yeah, I think every episode is a Star Trek episode.
2: Yeah, I
1: think this is. I think this is twice now we you brought up Star Trek. <laughs>
2: it it really is something that helps me keep going because you know say what you will about uh Star Trek today but um there were these moments in like the early 90s where it was really inspiring and and took risks and i feel like deep space 9 and the first episode in particular is like a home run in in every way that it could be um not just as entertainment but as this a vision of like an inclusive utopian future uh yeah i don't know i could go on but i shouldn't
0: (laughs) (laughs) well you shouldn't because look at that our guest is arriving
2: (laughs) oh it's john
0: hey john hey john that's a nice covid beard you got there
3: I will probably do the same thing because um so I have a second grader here, and she's in class right now, so we have two two of us are streaming over well, yeah. she uses hangouts, not zoom which is more reliable um I don't know, she hasn't said she's had any problems with with hangouts, and I mean it's
1: like. 25 kids and the teacher on that yeah whereas every time i use zoom i feel like i have a problem
3: yeah i've been having i've been (laughs) having more bandwidth issues lately and i don't even know if it's actually like the band like the the internet right
1: It, it may be it may be that it's zoom i don't know right right so yeah what was going on there was a there was some construction going on and they hit a pipeline or something according to comcast
3: it was, uh, in, the, in the process of routine maintenance, at like one in the morning, they broke like a fiber line. Oh my gosh. And so they had to repair that, and it was down for like 12 hours.
0: It's so <clears throat> exciting, these internet germs. Uh, when I studied abroad in Cairo, I think like the first month I was there, so still really getting my, uh, my footing, a ship's anchor uh, severed the fiber optic cable what? that went like what? under the Mediterranean Sea. So like all of Egypt didn't have internet basically. Wow. Um, gotta keep wow. those cables safe. That's, um, that
3: Yeah, that's unbelievable. That's, that's yeah. crazy. I wonder if that happens regularly because there's a lot of cables, right? Under the, <laughs> under, <laughs> under the world? Under the ocean? Under the water? <laughs>
0: <laughs> under the world. Um. Hey, let's start our interview. Our guest today is John Jameson, who joins us from the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where he leads the media and design team. Prior to this, he spent several years leading the instructional media team, also at Stanford GSB. When he's not creating visual media, he plays bass guitar for the band's Time Spent Driving and Crucial Unicorn, with whom he toured what? various venues in Europe and the United States, sharing the stage with bands like The Misfits, Youth Brigade, and Papa Roach.
1: No
3: what way. What a bio, John. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I guess, eclectic is one way to describe it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you. For the introduction,
1: what kind of what kind of music are you guys?
3: Um, so I, I think uh, time spent driving is more. Uh, it would probably be classified as like a post punk, and so it's like in the vein of like a, a Jimmy Eat World type of band. Um, mm-hmm. And, oh, yeah. and um, Crucial Unicorn is 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 probably like a post hardcore. So it's like a hardcore band, but with like it's more melodic. Um, than just that so it's definitely more upbeat a bit faster so you guys uh, like than what we do with time spent driving yeah you guys like fast tempos yes yes for sure i mean that's (laughs) i I definitely love me some rock and roll some punk rock music that sort of thing um my serious uh xm channel of choice is marky ramone's punk rock blitzkrieg (laughs) um so i i like the old the old stuff the fast stuff um yeah keeping the legacy alive Keeping the legacy alive, I love it. John, did you grow yeah. up in the Bay? Yeah, I did. I'm from uh, Santa Cruz, and so um, <clears throat> I was thinking about this this morning actually. That so Santa Cruz has a really, it, it, it historically has like a great music scene. Um, you know, it yeah. has. I'm sure you you are all are uh, familiar with the Catalyst. There used to be um, in the '90s oh, yeah. another club called Palookaville, Um, We have our Veterans Memorial Hall, um, which hosted punk rock shows and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, tons of bands came through Santa Cruz when I was a kid, and it was kind of like the stop between, I don't know, Los Angeles and San Francisco. And for whatever Mm -hmm. reason, people would just love to come to Santa Cruz and play, probably because of the beach. Beach, Santa Cruz is a great place, you know, and it's kind of got
2: its own vibe. Um yeah. I grew up in uh in Santa Clara. Okay. And we we would always go over the hill to Santa Cruz t- to catch a show. Um I think the last band I saw at the Catalyst was Future Islands. Ooh, I love Future uh, Islands. And um man, the the front man sweated through <laughs> an entire pair of pants like jeans by the half halfway point of the show and he had to go and change and he said he has to do that every show and he just has to throw the jeans out Well, the Well, the, the singer,
1: the lead singer, he's also just like particularly known for his live performances because he, he just grabs the mic and he, you know, oh, he yeah. just kind of like swings around and flails and doesn't really play any instruments, but he just really gets like passionately uh, uh,
2: hurls his voice into the microphone basically. Yeah. I, I was going to say that the Bay Area post-punk scene and, and that whole thing was so big in the in the 2000s. Yeah, it was
3: it was pretty it was pretty big in the 2000s. For me, it was kind of like the summer of 96. The summers of 96 and 97 were like big <laughs> nice. years, you know, where it felt like uh I was in high school at the time, but um there was just uh, so many good concerts happening in the Bay Area, and it was like every weekend. It was like who's playing and where, and mm-hmm. you know, it may it might be in uh, San Jose somewhere. It might be like at the Pound in San Francisco, or better yet, just in in our hometown in Santa Cruz.
0: So playing bass guitar with the touring band sounds like yeah. a time consuming activity. Is that yeah. something uh, pre GSB, or do you still <laughs> get to get to play? <laughs>
3: No, we don't. We so we don't really play too often anymore. Um, we we time spent driving just uh we recorded um a new EP, it was supposed to be a full length, but um, because of COVID, we weren't able to get back into the studio, so we decided to just go ahead and um release the five songs that we did have as an EP on um Spotify and other channels. And um, so we don't we don't tour anymore, and Crucial Unicorn is actually like this, this um. We kind of only pick up the instruments maybe once a year to play play a show. Usually around uh, December, um, for a few of us have birthdays then, and uh, just kind of get back together and, and have some fun, s- see some friends. So yeah, I don't I don't tour anymore actively. Haven't done that for quite a while. Um, that was kind of it, it feels like a lifetime ago in, <laughs> in some respects. You know? Younger days. Um, yeah younger days I mean music's still a huge part of my life, obviously um, because I do still play with with these friends and they're people that I played with for a long long period of time. Um, but yeah no no touring anymore that that's a that's a tough life. you know I, I've uh, only done a little bit of it. Um, that's what kind of drove me back to school um, was was experiencing tour life. It's definitely like a, <laughs> a blue collar job, I would say and it's it's hard work. It's not the. It's uh, a hustle that I think it's a hustle for sure. You know, and a lot of these people they're not making much money, um, yeah. especially early on. You know, they they need people to help support them. They need people to buy T shirts, CDs, all that stuff.
1: Um, and it's even harder and- now because I, you know, um, it's just so much harder to make money off records. Oof. So everyone has to, you know, constantly tour, constantly sell merch. Yeah, I mean, I've heard, I've heard. You know, I don't know how true this is, but
3: like. Even large bands, you know, the reason why Metallica tours so much is because they need to tour to make money. You know, they don't they don't make it necessarily. I'm sure Metallica makes it some money off of record sales, right? They got but, it, right? Yeah, but this is why bands tour. This is why you you know is to make money. This is how they make the majority of their money. And um, the road life is a it's a tough life. It is a hustle, like you how, said, Andrew.
1: How how did you how in the world did you find yourself with the likes of Papa Roach and Misfits anyway? <laughs> Well, Papa Roach was on. Um, it was like right before they blew up.
3: Oh so no! Way. This was yeah, and it was at the Catalyst, and it was actually uh, like the week before a friend of mine's band played with um, Alien Ant Farm. Do you oh, remember? Yeah. That band? Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh yeah! Oh yeah! Totally. <laughs> yeah, totally. So it was like that genre of music was kind of just starting to take off, and I don't even know what that that style of music is called, but. Um, but uh, yeah, Papa Roach um, came through, and we were really close. This the band that I was in at the time was a band called Jetlag. Um, we brought in crowds at the Catalyst, and so we were really close with the uh, the head booker there, the guy that put on the shows, Gary. And uh, you know, so when big bands would come through, he would often call us, and then he was like, "Hey, I got this band, Papa Roach. They just signed to like Capitol Records," um, or some some big label um they're gonna headline can you open up for them oh no way and and so we went ahead and did that but like it was like literally like nobody had heard of this band and then when they took the stage i mean they 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 everybody that was at that concert was a fan like instantly knew the words yeah exactly that what was that song do you remember that that uh Cut my life into the, pieces. The breakthrough song, uh, yeah, the, the, the big, oh, that that big that big song, man. <laughs> like when they they, I think they closed with that song, and people were just going insane. Is it
1: that was called nuts.
3: the Last Resort. Yeah, yeah, Last Resort. That's the one. That's the one. I still know it today. Yeah. <laughs> it was it a was cool iconic. video. Yeah, it is. I mean, that like yeah. that was a time, right? That was like a moment in time right. when that that came oh, out, yeah. and that was such a big song. Um, and so this was probably. I swear to you, it was like two months before that, if that. They were basically wow. just getting the word out and the touring and doing all that. And then, boom, it was just they were the biggest thing. And then they had that Mountain Dew commercial.
1: Oh, sorry. <laughs> 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 That's how you know you've made it, Mountain Dew commercials. <laughs> 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 Lifetime royalties. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: All right, John, you got to tell us about this transition from- <laughs> uh from playing this driving rock music to yeah. instructional uh, media and design, so what did you study <laughs> <laughs> what did you study in college
3: yeah, so um so I, I guess I'll go back a little bit that um I determined to try to give music a real shot um in my late teens early 20s so i actually held off on college um for a little bit and i (laughs) worked a number of of retail jobs i was like an assistant manager at just about every mall store that you can imagine (laughs) um and uh so i did that for a period of time and i gave myself till i was 25 and fortunately i have family that supported me through this endeavor um but uh, I gave myself till I was 25. I made it till I was 23. Um, that I was like, I just, I needed to do something different. Here. Just burnt out. Um, yeah, I was just burnt out. Um, I was actually coming home from a, a tour in Europe. So it's like, in some ways, it was at like the peak of where I I, I I felt like I made it as a musician. And I just didn't see it going much further with the band that I was playing with at the time. Mm. So... Um, yeah, I just was burnt out this one night there and I said I'm gonna go back to school. So um, I went to um, I, I started again at Cabrillo College and I had no idea what I was gonna do. I just set, you know, that that kind of intention and that focus towards this is this is like where I'm headed now. I'm just gonna I'm gonna graduate college, I'm gonna transfer somewhere, you know. Um,
0: John, I and, do yeah. I do theater at Cabrillo Stage some summers. So I know a bunch of people at Cabrillo. That's awesome.
3: I love Cabrillo college. It is fantastic. It is an amazing place. And really the, um, the professors there, like, I don't know, they instilled something in me while I was there. And I think if, if not for them, uh, I probably would not have, uh, gone on, um, through college, but they, they really instilled something They really inspired me. Um, but I took a communications class and at that level and at Cabrillo, it was mostly kind of interpersonal communications, public speaking, um, these sorts of things. But it was really intriguing to me, especially some of the science behind it. Um, so I I decided, okay, I think I'm going to pursue communications. I've always been creative. I like uh, video production, audio editing, obviously, making music, that sort of thing. So I, um, I thought, okay, I don't want to really kind of commit too much to to film necessarily, um, I didn't. I didn't see myself in that industry, but I thought maybe digital media might be a thing. You don't um, want to narrow yourself too thin. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so communications felt right. And then, while I was there at Cabrillo, I took a Japanese course, <laughs> and um, as part of that, a representative from Temple University Japan campus came to the the, the class, and they told me about temple university's satellite campus in tokyo japan and um from my time traveling with bands that was like my first taste of being abroad and so i i, I kind of determined as well that i wanted to, to live abroad you at were some hooked point in time. Yeah. yeah so i i kind of was able to kill two birds with one stone right like i'm gonna apply to temple university japan if i can get in there i can live abroad and i can finish my College. I mean, theory.
1: that's what I. That's what I tell um, anyone trying to uh, enter college nowadays. Is at, take at least a semester off and and go travel, or not off, but if there's a study abroad program, definitely take advantage of it. I mean, um, that it's just the perfect time to you. You have the balance of like freedom and and kind of responsibility, I guess, um, um, and and education. An open mind. Yeah, and an open mind and and the space to do it. So. Why not? yeah. did so Jessica tra- uh,
3: studied abroad. did every did Andrew did you do that? As yeah, well? I
1: spent um we were on a trimester program uh, for my college, and uh, I spent basically two quarters um in Paris, Paris, France. yeah. Um, me, because I, I come from, like, a film background, and and that's that was my passion. That still is my passion. So naturally, I was like... If French it, film. Exactly, yeah. French film was... And, and Paris was just... I had this, like, romantic notion of what Paris would be like. Um, turns out it's just like any other metropolis, where <laughs> it could be just as dirty, just as, uh, you know, the inequality is just as uh, rampant, et cetera, et cetera. But... Um, yeah, I definitely walked in with this like romanticized notion of what, um, Paris was, especially when it, it's tied to film culture. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I took one year of French, uh, freshman year and I was determined by junior year that I would be going abroad. So I, I, I knew very little French, but, um, you know, once, once you just immerse yourself in another place, uh, you just kind of naturally pick up. Things through osmosis and just experience. um so by the end, I was fairly conversational um, uh, and I was reading a little bit and all of that. but you know it wasn't the same uh, <laughs> the same um experience as I thought it would be as I had imagined it in my head yeah i so
3: i I think it's interesting getting the chance to live abroad because it's so much different than just traveling somewhere, right. right? Yeah. Like getting to work in another place or go to school and actually live somewhere, you get to have that sort of experience, Andrew, right? Where you kind of see, oh, it's just like any other metro- me- metropolis, right? It's like a right. metropolitan area. It's, it has its you know seedy sides. It's got its beautiful aspects as well. Um, but that's what really I, I was looking for um, moving to Tokyo, uh, as well, and um, I, I, I didn't have any romantic notions, but I totally fell in love with Tokyo, and I would live there again in a heartbeat. That's funny.
1: I feel uh, like I feel like a lot of musicians do walk in with that kind of um, ideal notion of Tokyo as well, because Tokyo, or at least J- from what I understand, Japan has a very um, how do, how do you describe it? I guess I guess one way to describe it is this very westernized music sensibility um, so that a lot of Westerners tend to flock there. Um, same with movies mm-hmm. actually. Um, so I, 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 know quite a few people who have that, um, kind of notion about it, but I was surprised to hear you didn't. <laughs> I, not at first. I mean, my, <laughs> my,
3: my, uh, perception of Japan was a bit, um, rooted in the eighties and my upbringing there and kind of, ninjas and samurais and these sorts (laughs) of things and and video games you know i was a big nintendo kid and super nintendo and all that and so it was kind of those aspects that i was (laughs) really interested in um at the time and um and i was also so here's a fun fact i'm a big uh horror movie fan and um I was really into Japanese horror films at the time, oh my gosh. so Ju-On They're and the Ringu. I mean, they are <laughs> terrifying. Yeah. So uh, that was another thing that I was kind of immersed in right right before I I, I went there. Um, but it just also it felt so different from our culture, right? Oh, yeah. Like it seemed so, for
1: lack of a better word, foreign and
3: and. and that was appealing to me as well, even more so than, and,
1: than Paris, probably. Um, oh, so much more so. So maybe Cairo, so. maybe maybe Cairo's <laughs> up there.
0: I I'll bet Cairo and uh, Tokyo they could both be a little weird compared to here.
1: Yeah. What's
3: what I've always said about Tokyo that's interesting in Japanese culture is that it, it, um, there's not as different of a culture from from Western European American culture than there is in japan and it's also a, an advanced economy that's o- that's on par with ours right so they've developed things that are specific to their culture in a way that's it's it, it, you just don't see it in other places like i've been all over asia and japan stands out for sure um because of i think it's stature as a as a more advanced economy um it's just it's it's really interesting you know how they have like Akihabara and the whole um, kind of like video game technology district. You know you don't see anything like that in other places. Um, yeah, it's it's
2: it's a it's a crazy place, but I love it. William, did you ever did you ever study abroad? I forget. Um, no, I I didn't. I have traveled um, plenty, but I I've been looking forward to traveling and working somewhere else. In fact, I was planning to spend, like, a month in uh, the UK, and then COVID happened. Oh, that's and, right, uh, I remember that. You know, you know Thanks, how things COVID. But Japan is right up on my list. I mean, I, I can't tell you the number of things from Japan that have, like, changed my life. Like, especially in the, like, media and arts, you know. I, I feel like I, a lot of people have that experience, um, but... uh Yeah, I don't know. I mean, everything. Like, are there any like little little details about living in Tokyo that that come to mind as something that's unique or different?
4: Hmm.
3: I'll tell you a story uh, that I don't think would happen anywhere else other than (laughs) Tokyo. Um, So I would take. You know, they have a very good train system, like extremely good. So much so that if you go into work and you say oh, I'm late today because the train was late. They say, no, 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 no. That doesn't happen. It's the <laughs> equivalent of dog ate my homework. Yeah, and then, and then they say, do you have a note? So the, the, the train companies give notes if they are late to you to take wow, to your employer wow. because it's so uncommon, right? So
0: <laughs> My jaw is on the ground.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's awesome. Like it is, it is so great and it's such an awesome system. But anyways, you take the train everywhere and, um, you know, I would take it, it was probably like a 45 minute, I think I had two, uh, one stop, one transfer, two different trains that I took to get from home to Temple University campus. Um, and so I would hang out with my friends after school, you know, so sometimes I would be getting in pretty late and, um, you're on that train and, you know, you've I'm sure you've seen photos where it's really packed and everything like that. Um, right. As it gets later, it's a little you know, it's, it's not quite like that. Um, you get to, you get to have a seat and I'm sitting down and I have my um, my laptop up on the, um, the little overhead storage spot. And um, it, the kind of gentle sway, people will fall asleep, you know, and so somebody like falls asleep on your shoulder like an old Japanese woman or something, right? And so, but you're, you're kind of just sitting there and, and I fell asleep one time. And then um, all of a sudden I'm woken up by the conductor and it's the end of a stop. Uh, it's like the end of the train stop. And I'm like, oh, you know? Uh, so I, I jump up and um, I run to the other side. I hop on the train going back. Uh, fortunately, it's only like two or three stops to, to my, my spot. Um, I get there. And I realized I didn't have my computer with me. Oh, no. Oh, so no. I just left it on this train, and um, I got it back. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, nobody took it. Nobody stole it. Somebody turned it in to the train station, yeah. and, wow. like, I got it back, right? And it was, like, a Mac, like, when they were kind of, like, going up again, you know, those, like, white ones, those, those MacBooks mm. that were really popular for a time. So I thought for sure it was gone. Um, but yeah, I got it back. I got my wallet back when I lost that one time <laughs> with money still in it. The police, No. yeah, the police sent me a letter that they had my wallet and I <laughs> and I went down to the police station and picked it up and it had everything in it. Like this is, that's <laughs> Japanese culture. Like it's so respectful and, and people are all kind of in it together. And, um, that's something that always stands out to me. That's just... Just so so awesome about that culture and, and the people there. I love that. Wow. I actually yeah, once
0: I, in Cairo... Okay, in Cairo, when you're a white woman walking around, um, some men might say things to you on the street. And since I spoke Arabic, I often knew what they were. They often weren't bad. They're were just calling you honey um, or little pet names in Arabic. But I would kind of tune it out sometimes because it made me mad. I'd sort of put my maybe my bitch face on uh, and just walk down the street really fast. And they'd come after you sometimes pss, 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 and do this weird like whispered thing that I hated. So I'd walk even faster if someone was doing that to me. But one time it was this kid, not kid, like teenager, he followed me going pss, 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 pss. Or blocks as I got into the Khan al-Khalili which is the big street market because I dropped my wallet and he was following me to give me back my wallet which was so nice hmm there's not an end to that story just <laughs> people I guess hmm there are good people In- everywhere well, yeah, yeah, individual people can also be very nice <laughs> Uh, some of the nicest uh, individual people I
2: met were in Cairo. Okay, here's a wallet story in America. <laughs> uh, uh, in high school, um, I was driving around Santa Clara with my high school girlfriend, and uh, she had accidentally left the wallet on top of the car. You know how you do. And uh, it just flew off in the middle of the street somewhere. And she assumed it was gone forever. But then like a week later, she gets a package in the mail. It's her wallet, which some person had found. And there was a note with the wallet which said, I found your wallet in the middle of this intersection and I am mailing it back to your address on your driver's license. I took all the money.
0: I'll, I'll thank myself <laughs> oh that's great <laughs> at least that's they great. were honest
1: <laughs> so john, john um did your time being abroad did that make you in a way more confused about the future just you know given the shock of this new culture this new experience or did that kind of solidify like what you went to temple for or you know yeah.
3: So, so I told you I was talk- I was studying a bit of uh, yeah, uh, communications. It was more interpersonal communications, um, public speaking, that sort of thing uh, at Cabrillo. But then at, at Temple, it was definitely started to focus more on media um, and content production. And so I was starting to take videography courses, audio production courses, this s- sorts of things, things that kind of provided me with a bit of a creative um, outlet. And um, simultaneously, you know, this was the birth of social media at this point in time as well. Right. And so Facebook starts to become this thing. Twitter becomes this thing. It wasn't Twitter. Wasn't like the, um, the kind of news Goliath that it is now, you know, where it's like, I prefer star I, all there. I prefer the term shit show shit show. There you go. <laughs> so it wasn't quite that yet. Um, MySpace was still a pretty big thing. Um, but, but it was, things were changing. Right. And, um, while I was there studying, I got an internship at uh, the Japan Times, which is an English language newspaper in Tokyo. It's like uh, you know, I think it calls itself the oldest and largest English language ne- newspaper in Japan. and it's quite widely read. Um, and I worked on their their uh, with their digital team. So I did a number of um, very cool kind of interviews with bloggers um, about Japan. Uh, and I started doing some video editing for them. They had, you know, uh, people, videographers go out and capture footage and I would start to, uh, edit content for them, uh, manage their, their website. So post articles to that, that sort of thing. And that kind of got me into this digital media space and, um, was kind of my first taste of, of, uh, creating content for the web. Mm. And, um, and, and, and I think that was kind of the catalyst for everything that, that, that came after and kind of set me on a course. And when I returned home in uh, 2008, such a great time to graduate college, which was, you know, <laughs> the economy was a collapsing. Uh, I had no idea what was, you know, what I was going to do, but I wanted to get into um, to journalism. And, you know, I was thinking, hey, maybe I can become a camera op at a news agency. I was looking at these sorts of opportunities And um, I just happened to like, you know, I was looking at Craigslist uh, for for jobs and I, I happened to come across this organization called the Asia Foundation, which was based in San Francisco. And they had a production assistant opening that was part time in San Francisco. I was living in Santa Cruz. And I applied, and they just like they liked my Japanese back the the background in Japan, um, and some of my travel background and other things about me. Mm. Um, and um, and actually, the the two of the people that worked there went to UCSC, so there was this kind of Santa Cruz connection. Sure, wow. And um, I kind of really benefited from all these things in my in my background, and uh, they liked me, and they they hired me. And so for like six months, I commuted. <laughs> From Santa Cruz to San Francisco wow. three days a week um, Was because the traffic, I like this job. Was the traffic still bad back then? It wasn't nearly as bad, but it was certainly bad. Mm. What, Definitely. What would but, have
0: been the average commute on one of those days?
3: Oh, it was probably a, a, easily an hour and a half. I mean, that was – and, and they were in the financial district. Fortunately, it was off of um, – I think it's Third Avenue. So it's like a pretty straight shot off of 280 to kind of get in there. Mm. Um uh but um yeah, it was it was a long commute for sure. It was easy easily more than an hour and a half. Wow. Um yeah. I don't I don't quite remember those days too too, <laughs> too clearly. It feels like a blur, right? I mean 6 months is a blip. But but that I, I kind of um so one of the video producers left after yeah, 6 or 8 months. And um, I went into my boss and I just said, "Hey, I, you, you should hire me to be this, pro- you know, the producer. There, there's no reason why you shouldn't, you know." And <laughs> give uh, that
0: to me. He was, yeah, and he
3: was kind of taken aback, I think, you know. But I think he kind of liked my moxie or whatever to like, you know, go in and and ask for it and and just say, you know, there's no other choice. <laughs> and uh, so he he gave that 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 role to me as a video producer there. And then I stayed with them for six years. Oh wow! Uh, in that in that role, yeah, yeah. Um, but that was that was pretty that was a pretty amazing opportunity, and um, I got to do some really really awesome work while I was there. So,
1: so. it sounds like it sounds like you were largely like self taught and and trial and error, very hands on. Like you, you didn't have any like formal education in any like media production or anything like that. Because no, like- I'm the same way. I I, I studied English in college, um, thinking that would kind of be my career path and. Turns out, I really just leaned into what I loved, which was film and video. And with these short projects that I would do with, with friends, um, I just slowly uh, learned things on my own before I arrived yeah. at Stanford.
3: Yeah, I, you know, so I did a, I did a bunch of that. Um, I always liked video production. I did some of it. Um, I had like a camcorder when I was a kid. I was like one of those lucky kids to have one of the VHS like yeah, tapes yeah. that you can put in, you know. And so, like when I was like 13 to 15, we made like skateboarding videos. I was just going to say coming from Santa
1: Cruz sounds (laughs) like you would have done exactly that.
3: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So we did some of that and like, it had like really rudimentary graphics you could do. Like you could do, like you could take a still and, um, like, like a still image of something that's like maybe black and white and it could interpret like the colors and make this like kind of transparency and a single color graphic from that image. So like say a (laughs) skull, right? You could take like a skull and then you could overlay that. And then the way you would do it is by kind of like you would record over the recording that you have. It's kind of weird. I don't quite know how the technology worked, but uh, Oh, I think it was while you were recording to a VCR you right. would manually operate right. the camera <laughs> and these graphics and titles and stuff. It was – anyways. That, so I like – I got to do those sort of things and, and, yeah, largely self-taught. But also, Andrew, while I was in Tokyo, I did do some, like I said, videography courses. I did do some acting with, with, with some folks. Um, uh, I did uh, some lighting stuff, some audio stuff, Um I took a, a journalism course where I wrote this or I, I, I uh, directed a, a news piece about um, the sports club getting all this money and the <laughs> video game club getting none. And they essentially <laughs> like asked for the same thing. And um, and uh, so I, I did some of these 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 productions. So there was a little bit of teaching, but I would say largely it was it was uh, self-taught.
1: Best way to learn.
3: Yeah, I think so. You know, and I think I always, I always try to tell people about just trying to be creative with what you have, you know, and I think that's mm-hmm. like how you, you teach yourself certain things. It's just like, well, what do I have right now? You know, I have this, I don't know, I've got this, this recording device. It is what I have. So what can I do with it? Right. You know, um, I think we tried to talk a little bit about this with the podcasting, right? Everybody has a phone. And it has voice memos. If you want to do a podcast, yeah. use your phone. You know, like just start mm. recording and do something. Um, you don't
1: need to have f- all this fancy equipment. And, and, and the stuff. technology and, is there and accessible to anyone who really just wants to try it. It won't be. It won't feel as rudimentary as your thirteen-year-old uh, skate videos, but. But then yeah. again, then again, I'm sure we shouldn't be quick to dismiss those uh, awesome skate videos because I'm sure someone like someone like William
2: would really take to something like that, right? <laughs> well, I was you know, I was going to say, I mean, uh like I want to I'm wondering if you remember the model of the camera because I feel like, you know, those constraints, especially the ones that like early digital technology had, I mean, they make they make their mark on your work in a way that I, I, I think we dismiss it too often. I wholeheartedly agree. I think constraints
3: are, I, I, there's a saying about this, right? Um, uh, it, it helps fuel creativity in some ways, yeah. right? Um, and uh, when you have too many resources, I think that can actually be it can it can be a, a negative to, to your ability to be creative. Um, mm-hmm. You may focus too much on the technology, the quality of content, this sort of thing, and you're not thinking about the content itself. Um, and, and you're not... You, it's getting in the way of maybe your excitement about something, too. Um, right. So, yeah. I wish I still had those videos. You know, it'd be <laughs> awesome to see me and my buddies, you know, uh, <laughs> jumping off of... A set of th- three stairs, you know, or something like really small. You know, and to
1: us, it probably seemed like the coolest thing ever. But S- set uh, to the Misfits or Papa Relic Yeah, or something. exactly, exactly. So is is um, work also where you know, like your time at um, Asia Foundation is that also where you picked up skills like? Because I don't, I, I don't think we, yeah. I, I think we omitted this in the bio, but. You also have skills in, like, um, you can do, like, motion graphics, web development, yeah. um, you know, things like that. Is that is that where you picked up those skills as well?
3: Yeah, so certainly working in um, the nonprofit field, it's your you're resource constrained. So, you know, you don't have the option to bring in, you know, a great motion graphics designer or, um, you know, hire people to go out and, and capture footage or or um, you know, design a website. Right. Um, yeah. so, so that allowed me the space to develop, to, to develop some of these skills. Um, I would say my web development skills are more on, um, in line with, uh, uh, designing and working with people much more skilled than I am. <laughs> And and helping bring something to life. So I I did some data visualization work at my uh, my time at the Asia Foundation, Um, two particular uh, projects, one on um, uh, the Asia Foundation publishes an annual report on the state of Afghanistan. And so it's like a survey. Uh, It's the largest survey that's conducted in Afghanistan among the population, mm. they go door to door, they meet with people, they ask them a series of questions and then they measure trends over time because they've been doing it for something like 15 years, yeah. um, uh, maybe 20 now. Um, but when I was there, I think we had maybe 10 years of data, maybe even a little less, but we started to uh, put together a visualization that showed those trends over years at um, the, um, the kind of, not the state, but the region like, uh, based on the region of, of Afghanistan. Mm. And, um, you know, it had some nice charts and that sort of thing. And then we did another one that was, um, uh, that I, that I pretty much entirely designed like the overall look and what we wanted it to to do, which was, um, it was on interstate conflict across Asia. So, you know, Asia doesn't have any like real massive, wars going on but they do have these a lot of localized conflicts between ethnic minorities and the states and um these wars actually account for a large number these 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 small conflicts they 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 account for a large number of Fatalities and deaths and displacement and these other things, and so we created a visualization that that really kind of showed that, and that was in tandem with the uh, the publication of a book on interstate conflict um, that we that the Asia Foundation produced at the time. So so it gave me the opportunities to do that sort of thing, Um, and then also um, you know do some things in social media. You know, while I was there, I I kind of I got their like YouTube presence set up and there. Twitter channel set up and, and yeah. all that stuff and, and Facebook and, um, I think got them the nonprofit status. So it was like all legit and official. Um, and then did some like kind of social media campaigns when that was, uh, kind of a new thing. Um, so mm. it was, uh, it was a, it was a fun time.
1: It's a really, it allowed pl- me to do a lot really pioneering that stuff for them even if I thi- even yeah, if you definitely. might not have had the most clear sense of what was going on or how to do things
3: i yeah definitely i think it was pioneering i think uh, i think everybody was kind of in that boat at that period of time right i mean this was 2008 2009 right. yeah. um you know there there wasn't these large teams of social media people the way they they uh, there is now i mean the reason why i did it was because the comms department wasn't even thinking about it You know, they were just still focused on their um, website presence. And that was it. Um, But, you know, being in a digital media team that we were and producing video content that gave us insight into, you know, YouTube and and publishing content there and then also sharing it and distributing it across um, other social channels.
1: I mean, yeah, it sounds like, you know, that's the thing that would make sense for that time. Nowadays, you just have to publish something on TikTok and yeah <laughs> and you get your stuff out there
2: can you can you still do that Does tiktok still is tiktok I, I, still a thing yeah well I, 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 uh, <laughs> they approved the uh, sale of tiktok to oracle i believe oracle
3: nice oh so yeah. now it's a not a name you
2: associate with social media yeah well the us version yeah. it's complicated yeah it's complicated <laughs> it's unnecessary and complicated <laughs> but wow you're like a on the the pioneering forefront of i mean essentially like everything is social media driven now
3: yeah yeah certainly
2: are you still um, use are you using any of the like newer social media like tiktok or uh, like a snapchat or any of these things i use
3: snapchat but only with family <laughs> i use instagram <laughs> i don't <laughs> Like I I I'm not as active in all those those channels as I used to be. Um, I had a pretty good YouTube channel going for a little while. Um, that was sharing my own content. I had some pretty big videos, uh, especially from my time in um Japan. There was two in particular that I recorded in college that have I don't know in the tens of thousands of views. I have wow. a nice wow. I had a I did a uh, recording. So when 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 um the kind of canon dslr revolution happened in video production um which Mm -hmm. i'm sure some of you are familiar with and the the um the ability to shoot just awesome videos through dslrs um i got myself a canon 7d and i recorded um beta breakers in like 2010 or 2012 (laughs) and i think it's the most popular beta breakers video oh no um yeah it's uh it's got a lot of views on it and actually a few years ago i was um you know watching the news in the morning in bed with my partner and we're sitting there and um it's beta breakers and they they're giving an update and Lo and behold, here comes my footage. Oh no way! On NBC <laughs> uh, from a few years back, and they decided that it was okay just to pull it off of YouTube and broadcast <laughs> oh it gosh. without saying anything. No credit, and, huh? No credit, no nothing. Um, wow. Yeah, that was kind of funny. But uh, yeah, I think if you were to Google Beta Breakers, my video would be one of the first ones to come up.
1: Oh, I don't so. know. Twenty ten. I, I I might have been. Part of that crowd, just out of my mind, so I don't think I want to see myself (laughs) exposed. (laughs) I'll keep my eye open. I'm going to take a
3: look and see if I can find you in there, Andrew.
1: (laughs) So, how did you then? Was Asia Foundation the last um, the last job you had before you came to Stanford?
3: Yeah, yeah, that was the last one. So, um, at the Asia Foundation, my primary role was as a video producer um, for most of the time that I was there. And, um, uh, you know, I spent about a quarter of the year in Asia actually working there. So I was kind of like a one man band that would go out there. Well, two man. Oftentimes I would go with one of my colleagues. Um, But uh, we would go out there and we would actually visit with um, our local staff that were on the ground there. And we would see the programs that they were doing and we would produce video content that kind of fell into, uh, uh, I think, three categories. One was like reporting to our donors. So Asia Foundation gets a lot of its um, um, the money to operate from USAID and state departments across the world. So they get the primary primarily like they are kind of like a middle person that puts together the. Um, a, a description of how they're going to achieve some goal that 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 a state department wants to achieve, that like USAID wants to achieve, right? They'll sure. put together, okay, we have these people on the ground in the country that can do this work. We'll take the money and we'll give it to them and we'll oversee that, what it is that they're doing. So maybe it's like a, um, hmm. a police reform program, right? And so they would give that money to them. And like one of their big things was community oriented policing. And I worked on a number of projects around that, which is basically bringing, uh, the local government, the community and the police departments together to help solve community problems. And these were really just kind of supporting this, this process, this, um, uh, this this conversation that they could have and pulling these actors together. And uh, so we would go and record those and then we would tell that story and say how it's being successful, right? Um, and then we would also record things for public consumption just to broadcast what the Asia Foundation does, who they are. And then other times, it was actually programmatic content that I was producing. So, um, uh, so for instance, another police project in Sri Lanka, um, they um, were in a... A nasty civil war uh, with the northern part of Sri Lanka, right, which right. is uh, a minority Muslim population, and then a, uh, a, a B- Buddhist population as kind of the ruling party, right? And they were in a civil war for something like 20 or 30 years, and... Um, As a result of that, the police were kind of a paramilitary force, a kind of counterinsurgency force. But then when the Civil War ended, they needed to reform and become a civilian force, right? And so there was a lot of training around that, and I helped produce content um, like, you know, Torture is not a good thing to do to civilians, (laughs) you know, to citizens. You don't you don't do that. Right. So I produced content that was in a local language in participation with the police force and um, the local nonprofit groups that helped do that um wow so, John. So, sounds
0: like sounds like you have a lot of really valuable information and knowledge that uh, <laughs> might be relevant to america in 2020
3: I, I, maybe um <laughs> uh, yeah certainly there's i i worked with a lot of people who are magnitude smarter than i am and um do some really amazing work and are really, truly committed to kind of changing the world, right. Um, for the better. And that was fantastic to get to be a part of that. Um, but the reason why I say that is because, and, and and kind of going into the Stanford story is that, so I was traveling and doing these things, uh, in the field for literally a quarter of the year. Right. So it was like, you know, every other month I would be gone for a couple weeks to, you know, six weeks, at most, um, sometimes going to three different countries. And wow. then I had um, my first child, my daughter, um, and she she was born and um, it became a lot harder to be gone for sure. that amount of time. Um, and some other things happened that kind of just, they made me want to be home more. And so I started looking and uh, for, for new opportunities and I just thought education Would be a cool field um, to get into. Um, You know, MOOCs were starting to take off around this time. And you were just hearing a lot about like Khan Academy, um, yeah, MOOCs, uh, uh, online learning, all these things. And it just seemed like it was like, okay, this is something where I think my skills align with uh, a new and growing industry. And like we talked about before with like social media, I feel like I was a little bit there on the cusp of that. And then I felt like I could do the same thing in education, and so that really attracted me to um, to to that th- this 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 um, this field. Yeah. And uh, I just got lucky. <laughs> I just got lucky. <laughs> um, I just so happened to um, you know I actually originally ap- I applied at a lot of places, but um, I got really far in the process at Slack at a job that was available at Slack. And it wasn't quite an education, hmm. but it was um, it was um, you know, creating content for their their website and their uh, kind of web presence and everything. Oh that must have been pretty and early for them. Yeah, FN. I think it was. It w- well it, w- it would have been um, uh, 2014 is when they were hiring for that mm-hmm. that role. And I got pretty far in it and uh, and there was somebody I think his name was Andy who, who, um, who ran that, that, that team at the time. And, uh, afterwards, you know, I followed up and, you know, oh, well we went with somebody that kind of had a unique background, so we didn't go for you, but you know, we really liked you, you know, we thought you did great. I said, okay, that's great. Do you mind if I like use you as a reference, like moving forward, like if something else happens, can we like connect on LinkedIn or something? So I did that, and then the GSB had a posting for a video producer, and uh, I ended up reaching out to Andy, and I said, "Hey, there's this other job. Do you know anybody at the GSB?" "Oh yeah, I totally. I know. I know uh, Jonas, oh, um, no who is is hiring that. And yeah, I would love to send a message. So he sent a message. That kind of got the ball rolling, and um, oh, hey, I honest, was I was history. thinking
1: you brought up you you were bringing up Andy because you were bitter or vindictive and maybe we need to blurt out his name or something but it turns out it's quite the no, opposite
3: no totally the opposite I think he was totally genuine and um you know uh in that hiring process and I really appreciated that and then um you know somebody had told me uh, you know try to connect with him if it, if it went well you you should connect oh, yeah. and maybe it, and maybe it'll come in handy later And, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not very good at the networking thing, to be honest. Sounds like uh, you
0: are, actually.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is, Jessica, the reason why I say that is because, um, this was kind of like the first time I was like, oh, can you maybe do this thing for me? Um, and I was a little nervous about it, but he was like, yeah, sure. No problem. And, uh, yeah. And it it ended up working out. So,
0: so we
2: got some sirens. (laughs) New York City.
0: Okay, good. That was William. I thought John, you were saying that yeah. was you. I was like, that's a William sound. This iron.
2: <laughs> By the way, um, John, yeah. your beta breakers video is indeed the first thing that comes up. Woo! Oh wow! <laughs> <All right.
0: laughs> how many? Killing how it. many views does it have?
2: <laughs> um, let's see. I don't think it's like fifties. Yeah. 56,000 all right oh wow and it looks great thank you thank you
0: (laughs) (laughs) so at the asia foundation you were kind of a jack of all trades doing working in a lot of different media um Mm -hmm. i imagine working at gsb is a little different than that but do you still get to play around in different fields
3: yeah um you know, not so much for me day to day um because i i I do lead a team now um so you know, I think my focus is more on on developing skills as a as a leader and supporting others to do great work right and making sure that i can clear paths for them to, to to do their work and um identify opportunities that align with their interests um and the work that we do right but but certainly when i first came on to the gsb it was as a um a, a video producer and um we did some really really cool things that we're still doing to this day like um multimedia cases um you know, starting to think about uh, how how audio could be leveraged um, in in online courses, um, things like this. So I, I do feel like I've still had the opportunity to be um, creative in some ways. I think the only the only difference is is I feel a little less constrained um, than I did at uh, the Asia Foundation, going from a, you know a nonprofit to Stanford, one of the most well-funded. Schools. Well, and not only Stanford, but
0: business school.
3: The, yeah, the business school, exactly. <laughs> um, but but yeah, overall, certainly, I think we've had had the opportunity to do some really really cool things and and uh, be experimental and, um, and and test some exciting things out.
0: Tell us about audio in online courses. Uh, what are you finding?
3: S- so I gotta I gotta give all the credit to. Um, one of my colleagues, Kelsey Doyle, I'll shout out to her right now, but, um, and, and another one, Pamela Levine. And, um, the reason being is that, you know, I think Pamela and Kelsey and I had chatted for some time about, you know, all of us had an interest in in podcasts and, uh, we were kind of looking for an opportunity, um, to record something, uh, for, for a course. And, we talked about it for a long period of time. And again, it was one of those things where it's like, you know, sometimes opportunities are going to present themselves. Other times you just kind of got to do, right? Right. And so Can't I think – Can't sit the one, around
1: waiting all the time.
3: Yeah, exactly. So the one the, – the, I think the one piece I had in all of this is that I said, let's just go down to the studio and just record some things, you know, and just talk. And let's 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 prove out that we can just do this and um, set some music to it. It doesn't even need to be anything right. Well, it doesn't need to be anything specific. We'll just record. We'll talk. We'll use the equipment we have. We'll use the microphones that we have. We'll just run it through the um, the camera. We'll record to that and we'll just use the audio track. It's not a big deal. So we ended up doing that. And I think that really helped in like show everybody okay we can we can actually do something we can do something that sounds pretty good um it's amazing that just going in the studio and talking we were able to produce something that 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 sounds professional and sounds like a a podcast i would listen to um and so from there we were able to use that to shop around some ideas and and one of the cool things um that we did early on was um with a course for um the executive education lead program um what course was it uh I think it's called Leadership Agility, and the faculty member is Christian Wheeler, and he has these um, kind of like improv exercises that he does, and so rather than record those on video, we recorded audio content of them, and he, he kind of walks you through these, like, you know, how your posture feels, and it's almost like oh. meditative in a sense, right? You know, because it's kind of trying to get in tune with and aware of your body, and mm. you kind of need to like stand up and act these things out because he's like, you know, imagine you're a lion stalking the Sahara, you know, and you're supposed to kind of to, to get that feeling and and, um, and and your body should reflect it. And you can't really do that watching a video. Right. So it really kind of lent itself well to uh, to audio production. And so we've been thinking about those sorts of things, um, trying to find those opportunities Um, where we can record content like that another thing that we've done is is just kind of do like debriefs so um our instructional designers um they've they've recorded a number of things where it's like after a specific lecture there might be a a kind of follow-up debrief interview that they do with the faculty oh so you talked a little bit about such and such how does that relate to something like this or the case that you're talking about? So it kind of had this more conversational mm. aspect to it. Um, and that's been that's been pretty successful as well. So um, and then I think the future is is something that we're really excited about um, is uh, what we're calling pod cases. And that would be, um, you know, working, collaborating with our case writing office to develop some audio cases that we think could be, kind of a neat way to deliver case content. You know, this is not not right. something to, like, replace the traditional case, but, you know, something that a grad student, maybe they're working out, right? And they just want to listen to the case, and then maybe they can go back to the written one and make some notes on it. But it's another way, another, another channel to get the content.
1: I mean, it sounds similar to what some of the things we've done at um, Stanford Medicine, where um, we also rely, a lo- I mean the medical education relies heavily on case studies and examples. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, you know, for whether it's for privacy reasons or for other hurdles, um, you know, just not showing faces, not having to rely on reenactments, you know, just sticking to audio only has been very useful um, in that sense. So I think Yeah, there's... and
0: now, now is certainly a good time to be doing that with COVID since getting a right. video production team out is difficult. Um, And we've been doing that for our Q centered therapy course. Uh, Our clinical vignettes for that, which were supposed to be live film, are now audiobooks, um, which was a very fun adventure for us, something new. Um, So how has COVID (laughs) affected uh, GSB and your work?
3: You know, I think uh, primarily we've just done a lot more support. Um, so uh, and what I mean by that is is supporting faculty to, to create content at home, um, you know, create lecture content, uh, that sort of thing. So so teaching them about framing, about good lighting, um, our video producers actually will um, do like a kind of consultation where they. All right, take me around your house. Let's try to find a good background, you know, um, <laughs> no these sorts ways. of things. So we, we do a little bit of that, um, sitting in on the call, um, maybe recording it um, for them, uh, doing a bit of that, um, advising on if they are looking at getting like a home set up. Um, we, you know, uh, we had one faculty member who wanted to get like a green screen set up. Um, and so we we helped advise on that um Advice so a lot of,
0: against that or?
3: <laughs> no we so you know he was i look, i'm not gonna tell somebody that's really excited about it to to not do it i'm gonna right.
4: try
3: to <laughs> i'm gonna try to empower them to the best of my ability, you know, and i'm gonna try to encourage my team to do the same i think. Obviously, through the the, the the consultation, you you know try to drill in. Okay, are you really going to be able to do this? Let them know the challenges and and um, what they're going to experience. But if they're if they're excited about it, I mean, go for it. You know Why what? Not? I love
0: I love that outlook because faculty <laughs> excitement is often what a project runs on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and <laughs>
1: That's
3: it
0: can be yeah. quite
1: yeah. uncommon sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Look, i I've, I've I'll tell you too.
3: I, I I'm sure you've experienced this, but. I've been skeptical of certain things at times, <laughs> right? But a faculty member has been super excited about it, and they turned out to be right, you know? And, and I mean, that's happened to me in not just mm-hmm. here, but in a lot of my experience, you know? I've been skeptical about things and somebody's ability to, um, I don't know, create something. And, um, you know, you're often surprised, especially when they are excited.
1: Yeah. It is... Is um, your work facilitating that transition for GSB is that was that part of the teaching and learning hub? because um, I remember yeah. I, I just doing a little research on your background, I came up across this article that featured the hub um, as part of this uh, larger initiative in GSB to um, try to adjust to the new normal. Yeah, or is that uh, something or is that something different?
3: No, I think it's, 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 it's kind of both. It's something, I mean, it's our, it's, um, yes, uh, the teaching and learning hub, um, and, uh, that channel, like, so I, my team media and design sits under teaching and learning hub and, um, through COVID. So we have a, we have a team that's like instructional designers, technologists, um, uh, developers, um, my team is, you know, video content, people, uh, media content, I should say, um, um, visual design artists that support faculty for, uh, developing like their faculty profile websites, their, um, uh, slide decks, their presentation materials right. that they may put together. Um, we also have case writing office. We have a couple of programs. Um, so, so it's this large team and, um, it's really the mission is is to help support the teaching experience at, at the GSB, right? And so through that, and we get a lot of requests for these sorts of things. Um, also, when our instructional designers may be engaging with faculty on some consultation, they know what our skill set is, and they may say, hey, this could be a good opportunity for uh, you know, the media team to step in and, and help develop some content or advise them on how best to uh, uh, create some content. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so in addition to those things that I was telling you about before and the kind of consultations that we have, you know, we've also done some some minor animations um, uh over recordings that have been done over Zoom, and then we've also kind of just carried on some of our normal work. So we have been approved to go into the studio, and we've made some changes to our studio operations so that way we can make that a safe space mm-hmm. um, for faculty. And, and we haven't done it, you know, a ton of times, but um, we certainly have gone in a few times uh, yeah. over the last uh, couple months. Um, yeah. So just just trying to adapt and figure out how our skill set can best best support faculty.
1: So when you were talking about how you have these instructional designers and, um, learning consultants, you know, things like that, is that technically what's considered the instructional media team? Um, and now, cause I, I also, as part of the, um, stalking you online, I, I recently <laughs> st- I stumbled across your LinkedIn where it said you kind of transitioned into a new team within the GSB, um, media and design. So I'm wondering if that's, If that's different from the instructional media team, um, where you're now working more with visual designers, um, Mm -hmm. uh, producers and stuff like that.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right, Andrew. Um, so previously, uh, I was the associate director of instructional media and, um, that was primarily, um, yeah, what it sounds like, right? Media content um, for, for online courses, um, and some, some in-course content, um, and, uh. We worked similar to your team in that we were part of a group called Learning Design and Technology. And um, that team, uh, Learning Design and Development, they had um, instructional designers. We call them learning experience designers. Um, and Different words, have, same thing. <laughs> yeah. and, and then they have uh, uh, the, te- the the learning technologists and they also had the developers on the team. And we would collaborate on these kind of you know, online courses that we would help develop, whether it be for the MBA program or for executive education. Um, Now, as part of teaching and learning hub, we recently had a reorganization. And so we've kind of split off from learning design and technology. They're still in teaching and learning hub. They still have their same uh, management structure and everything. Their same, same, same team structure. Yeah. Um, But now we've brought in our visual design group, which which I like I said before manages the um, the kind of decks they help design decks playbooks, uh, uh, web material that sort of thing for for faculty. Uh, we've brought them in and the instructional media team under under me, and now I'm at this uh, and we've formed this media and design team. Very cool. With really the idea that we can you know we can better serve faculty um, with the skills that we bring to bear. Um, we have a lot of opportunity to collaborate. Um, and, uh, and yeah, start to, um, better serve faculty with media and design content. Very cool. Yeah. It's exciting. It's really new. It's actually only like a week, a week ago that we, uh, announced this. Mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> so, um, aside from what you're doing at GSB, is there anything in terms of, um, the work you do outside of, outside of Stanford, whether it's music or um, any media production that you're doing on the side or on your own um, or even just raising a family but I'm, I'm sure I'm sure we, uh, you know everyone has something to say about that part but when it comes to like let's say other things that you're doing music or uh, media uh, has any of that changed significantly under shelter in place new normal I mean or has 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 just like you know getting together and just working it just kind of shrunk a little bit
3: one of the things that i've been surprised about is how well we've been able to produce um content in this environment um using things like remote desktop you know we have pretty Mm. high performance machines on site we have um uh you know a, a network storage that's pretty high speed. Um, we have a lot of things that, that made it that um, working on site is, is really optimal for us. And <clears throat> I was really concerned um, how it was gonna work through all of this. Sure. But we've been great. And um, I think everybody on the team has felt really confident um, in how they're working, their ability to get their job done. Um, so, so that's been fantastic when we do kind of the, the traditional work we're accustomed to. Um, you know, COVID is God. It's affected everything, really. You know, it's it's it. That's such a big question, Andrew. I mean, I'm in my like home office right now. As soon as I was, as
1: soon as I was asking that question, I was like, I was like shaking my head at myself. I was like, (laughs) that you could we could do a whole separate episode on just this answer. Yeah,
3: (laughs) I mean, for for me personally, like, I I have two kids. I have a two year old and I have a second grader and who's seven. And, um, so I was saying, I'm in my home office here. Like it's really hard for her to do her work and be in school while she has a little sister that's running around mm, and needing yeah. her, you know, her own things. And fortunately, um, we're lucky that, you know, I, I, like my, my partner, she, um, she, she, she's a full-time mom. And so she's able to, t- to help with our two-year-old and manage that and do like potty training. We're doing potty training right now, which is just (laughs) crazy. Um, but my, my second grader, she works behind me in my home office. And so, um, You know, that's like a reality now. You know, she's here and I'm I'm gonna help her as best I can when she has questions while through the course of my day while I'm on Zoom meetings and that sort of thing. And she's gotta
1: hear listen to you talk about post punk skate videos.
3: (laughs) (laughs) She's not here right now, but uh yeah, but she certainly gets her fair share of that. Um and you know, early on, I made a determination that I wanted to be authentic about the situation that I was in. Yeah. And um, part of this is to support the other, like, caregivers and people that ha- are in a similar situation to me, but to demonstrate that, like, look, I'm like going through this as well. And so I am completely fine if my daughter comes in, you know, to the meeting. And wants to AI mm-hmm. and jumps on it and i just try <laughs> to show that that's okay because right. i think i think people need to see that right now i think they need to understand that like there's more important things um in this situation yeah and you know your family is one of those things um i can get the job done others can get the job done but we need a little bit of um flexibility s- flexibility understanding um, all of that yeah Yeah. So, so that's, I'd say that's probably one of the biggest uh, changes that I've, that I've um, seen, uh, how it's affected my work in terms of band stuff. We got together to take some band photos. Um, Again, you know, socially distanced. We we tried at first, but it wasn't the widest angle
1: band photos.
3: It wasn't really working out. Um, but we, we, yeah, we broke the quarantine. I think that was the first time I actually went out. Yeah. Um, it was a, cu- a few months ago and, um, and we, t- we took some band photos. Um, but beyond that, we haven't, we haven't really done anything. I have seen some other friends that have done like these, um, like streaming concerts. I don't know if you've seen these on like Instagram or anything like that, but I, I have a, yeah, a friend. Sure. Uh, she's in a band uh, called a uh, flock of, Sh- of sea girls. I think is what it's called. And they're like an 80s cover, cover band. <laughs> and um, they, they've done some like socially distance online concerts. Um, Very cool. That, that have looked pretty cool. Yeah.
0: Um, so give us something to be hopeful for the future and the, uh, the future of higher education and online education and the world. Just tell me something <laughs> that you're hopeful for.
3: <laughs> okay. Um, so I think in terms of uh, what we should all be hopeful for is that, you know, this is um, this is one of those moments in time that I think all of us are building resilience and um, strengthening the bonds that we have as team members and as colleagues with one another. And I think getting through this, you know, you're going to be you're going to be a stronger team as a result. Um, especially if you have good leadership, which I think your team certainly does. Um, and, um, sounds like your
0: team does too.
3: (laughs) I, thank you. Um, (laughs) so I think that that's one thing that I, I think is really positive, you know? Um, and, and from my experience, like teaching and learning hub, we were a new group when this all started. And this is like, I think there's 35 people across our whole team and, this kind of forced us to have cohesion and to Mm. collaborate more and all of that. And so I think, so, so saying that kind of comes from experience, I think, I think coming out of this is going to be great. I think also as individuals being able to say that we lived through this and we, you know, produced content in these ways, that's going to be, that's going to be great. It's great experience. You know, um, the other thing is for, for online education, I mean, it's all online, right? So it's kind of like the genie's been let out of the bottle in some ways. And so I think, you know, our team certainly has been working with more faculty and having more opportunities to interface with them and get to know them. And, and they've gotten to learn a lot about uh, our skills and what we can bring to the table. And so I think that's going to have massive benefits in terms of um, thinking about online programming and um, hybrid courses and flipped courses and that sort of thing as we move forward. So I I would anticipate that, 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 that space is going to grow. Um, Certainly, uh, across the the education space, right? It's gonna. Yeah. It's only gonna grow. I mean, I, there's going, no doubt.
0: Going forward, once things get back to normal, we're not going to still be doing this. Like, it's not all going to be online, but yeah. we've proven that we can do it, and exactly. so we can be more flexible going. Forward. I
3: think, I think the big thing is, is a lot of people that um, were maybe hesitant or skeptical or had concerns. They probably, you know, many of those people still feel that, you know, uh, teaching in a classroom is how they feel is the best, the best modality, the best way to deliver their content. And they may be right, but some of them are probably changing their perceptions and saying, "Wow, I'm actually really doing a lot of the same thing, and I'm reaching my students in the same way. And I think that's where like like that's becoming a wider band of of, of instructors, of faculty, of teachers, right? And I think it's probably the same in elementary schools, right? I've, I've noticed my teacher my, my daughter's teacher struggling a lot. Um, but she's huh. also learning a lot about technology and how to use it effectively. Right. And so that's yeah. that's hugely positive. I think that's just that's amazing. And in terms of the world, I don't know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's also a
1: big question. That's a big question.
3: <laughs> I am somebody that believes strongly in, um, you know, the arc of time and history bends towards justice. Um, I'm also extremely optimistic and a and a positive person. I think that um, our current world and the the media environment and social media has us. Um, Gives us an inaccurate perception of the world. It's it's like um, everything is local feeling now. When you when you go outside and you interact with people, though, most people are not assholes, and they're not you know.
0: You mean uh, you mean like the bad things? <laughs> the bad things on the news feel local.
3: Yeah, the bad the bad world news feels local, right? And that's simply. I don't think that's the case in a lot of in a lot of aspects. Yeah, obviously there's terrible things. There's, you know, the the social justice movement, the racial justice movement is a real thing. You know, there these are real issues. Obviously, don't get me wrong. Um, and we also have the best healthcare ever in history. We, you know, a lot of people enjoy more. Success than ever in history in terms of like you know your ability to leave lead a comfortable life. More people have access to the things like food, shelter, water than ever in history. I mean, there's a lot of positive things too, and and I would hope that we get through this political moment.
1: I guess is is all. I try to be optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I always have to sneak in
3: my soundboard
2: in there somewhere.
1: <laughs> uh, beautiful.
2: Uh, yeah. Well said, John. I
3: yes. hope. Look, it's just it's just hope. I don't know. I I we were we were talking about QAnon, my partner and I, last night, and yeah, man, I got I I love conspiracy theories too. Um Why? Just in the. I I love the like. <laughs> I just am like the it's X-files. like it's like rubbernecking or something. It's like kind of like when you see a car accident or something. It's like what. And, like, I really just like to, like, where are they getting this idea? Like, somebody – I have a few people that I'm, like, you know, friends with from the past. We don't really associate much anymore, but I see things they post on social media, right? And it's abhorrent. But, like, this one person, you know, he's a flat earther now. Um, He posted something about, like, the government making it rain and why don't they make it rain for the fires, in California and it's just like fascinating to me why you would believe this <laughs> that's good that's good andrea but why <laughs> why why you would believe this and then you know it's just like uh, it's so mm. easily disproven and also why there's yeah, a why why I don't know
2: there's a great documentary on uh flat earth on Netflix which tries to answer some of these questions yeah um I mean one thing is like If you get deep into it, how do you leave? You know, yeah, because your whole life is destroyed by you believing this thing that is insane. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think that's. But I mean, we're going to need a rehabilitation
0: program for flat earthers. Yes,
2: I think that's a serious thing that people will need. Again, though, I
3: think this is one of those things, too, that it's not nearly as large as the media portrays it to be. Like, I think it's kind of yeah. like, yeah, it definitely reached a lot more people through YouTube and their practices and all of that. Um, but really, how many people? I think their voices are just amplified through social media and these these things. It's it's interesting. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong.
0: Jessica's smiling at well,
3: me like, John, you have no idea. What are you talking about?
0: <laughs> you just had me feeling so hopeful and then <laughs> you brought this up and now I feel sad again.
3: But so this is what I mean though, like about like the world and how it works. Like these things are not new, right? Have you have you have you right. like ever looked into like the whole like satanic cults of the eighties? <laughs> and
0: uh, I've listened to a lot of my favorite murder, where they talk uh, yeah. about the satanic cults in the
3: 80s. So that was like a crazy conspiracy theory that just took the on a life of its panic. own. Yeah, the satanic panic, exactly. So I mean these things aren't necessarily new. And that's what's like that's what I think is interesting about it and why I kinda like to look into it and follow up on these things. Cause it's just it's like if I was I don't know, if I if I was in academia in the sense that I studied these things that would probably be my area of focus like why do people believe these ideas and um how does it spread in social media and in this this kind of new context really interesting stuff to me yep (laughs) (laughs) andrew don't you have like a, a a noise to play for that like some sort of special sound effect (laughs)
0: No, get the crickets out of here. Um, John, it has been delightful talking to you. I got to be honest, I was worried you're our first podcast guest um, that we've had that I don't like personally know and already have some rapport with. Uh Talking to strangers frightens me. But this was so fun. Um, Learning all about your band in Japan. I want to go, man. Oh, yeah.
1: Speaking of which, uh, give, give us a quick shout out for your new EP. What's it called? Y- yeah. And it's where called can Str- you find it? It's called Estrangers. Uh,
3: you can find it on Spotify and Bandcamp. Um, we probably have a link on our time uh, websites. website. Um, I'll yeah, definitely I add it to it, the show I, notes. I highly recommend it. It's... I think like uh, uh, most creative people it's always the the last thing you created was always is always kind of your favorite right um, I would say this yeah. is probably my the favorite my favorite album that I've recorded um, That's
0: that's great if you're not always producing your best work then why even produce
3: Exactly yeah. and um, you know and if people are interested in any of the music that I've created they can also go to my own website johnjameson.com and uh, listen to that content, see some cool photos from my travels, and also see some of video content I've produced.
1: I'll add that to the show notes as well. Cool.
0: And I look forward to a day when we can travel again.
3: <laughs> oh, I, I, I yeah.
0: <laughs>
3: I miss those days so much. <laughs> I haven't traveled in so long. I think the last time I was out of this country was in 2000. Uh, God, 16, 17. Oh, wow.
0: Yeah, so it's been a while and we
3: were, yeah, we were talking about wanting to get, get out of the country and, um, COVID Thanks, 2020, COVID. <laughs> 2020 struck. Yep. Yeah. So hopefully it happens soon. <laughs> Jessica, I wanted to say, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jessica, William, Andrew, I appreciate you. Uh, you know, uh, this interview, I, you couldn't, you, I wouldn't have known at all. Jessica, that this is your first time interviewing a person that you don't have a personal rapport with yet, or that you <laughs> don't like talking to strangers.
0: <laughs> well, I did dress up since you're in GSB. I wore a button up shirt. That probably nice. Helped. It does nice. have um, skateboarding dinosaurs on it, though.
3: Oh,
1: yeah. That's
0: so cool. Perfect. I like long that. Long. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us. Thank I'm you,
1: John. Yeah, it was, thank you, John. It was awesome. Talk yeah. You. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us once again for this episode of EdTech Cafe. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast. And have a great week.